Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Network Effect, Episode 9. This is the show where we open our little black book and connect you with some of the uh, entrepreneurs, professionals, and investors from around the world who have interesting stories on how they're scaling their businesses, operating internationally, and give you some insight into running global businesses. Um, I'm here, obviously, today with Gina. Um, we've got a really exciting show for you today, um, one of our slightly different formats where Today we're going to run through a bit of a thought leadership piece in the mental health space before handing over to Asma for her um, amazing interview. We've got a great guest from ENI, um, obviously massive players in the oil and gas sector. So we think hopefully, obviously, that will tie into a little bit about what we want to discuss today as well. But um, stay tuned for that. We're going to kick today off, actually, by speaking on, on mental health, as we mentioned. Now, this is obviously a very broad topic, so we're going to be focused in on, on a couple of areas, obviously, how this impacts companies. Um, we're also not experts on this, a bit of a disclaimer there. Everything here is sort of our opinions as, as well as facts um, from reputable sources and so forth. But I think given that we're both, um, actually, sorry, before we kick into that, given such a, a wide um, topic. Topic, we thought it might be helpful just to give a definition on mental health because I think one of the key areas in this field is got is education for people understanding where and when you sort of start to step into this um, area and, and so forth so I thought Gina if you want to jump in with a definition for yeah, us. Yeah definitely so mental health is an integral part of our health and the WHO defines it as a state of well-being in which individuals realize their own abilities and can cope with the stresses of their life can work productively and are able to make a positive contribution to his or her community. Another definition that I really like is that mental health, like physical health, fluctuates along a spectrum. It can move from good mental health into a more severe form of mental health. Um, and it can, work can have a huge impact on what that scale looks like. So today, I think we're really going to try and focus on what organizations can do to help you know, reduce the impacts of mental health on their workforce. Um, and also what they can do to support their employees, especially throughout COVID, because at this time, we know that the workforce is really taking a, um, a toll when it comes to their mental health. Yeah, there were a lot of variables before to take into account and obviously COVID's just thrown a whole nother range onto that and I guess we'll touch on it in a moment and I think obviously we've been seeing a shift in healthcare or, or if, if you have your eye on that space towards preventative um, medicine and programs. A lot of insurance companies at the moment are starting to offer free wellness programs to their customers because if they spend a little bit of money on wellness programs keeping their, uh, their clients healthy, they don't end up in hospital, which is which what costs more money to the insurance than providing the wellness program. So we've seen that shift in medicine, but also it's slowly starting to come to the mental health space. And I guess silver linings for COVID, it, it's sort of helping to do that. So, I mean, we're, we're both expats that have sort of been impacted by this as well. So we thought we'd start with the expat experience just to sort of narrow down our field and, and to take a bit of a look at it. I mean, I'm an Australian, but have been living in London for eight years now. So I'm fairly well established here. 
but COVID did essentially stop me from being able to travel home, which I would normally do annually. Um, also, my parents were meant to be um, coming to the UK in, I think, April or May. Seems like a long time ago when, when that was meant to be happening. Um, so I haven't seen my family in two and a half years, um, other than obviously <laughs> online. Um, you kind of went slightly the other way yeah. and managed to get home, right? Exactly, yeah. So I was luckily working in an industry that was quite on top of medical research, and they pretty quickly identified that COVID would likely lead to a pandemic. So I was alerted that I could head home um, back to South Africa, which was a game changer for me because obviously I had access to my friends and network and family back home. Um, but on the other hand, I guess I felt some mental health impacts because I had anxiety about returning to the UK when I would be able to do so, lockdowns, not knowing you know, what would happen. And I think one of my favorite quotes when it comes to COVID is the only, uh, the main uncertainty is uncertainty. Sorry, the main certainty is uncertainty. And um, that's so true because you really don't know what's going to be thrown at you next. And that can really help, really impact your anxiety and stress. Um, so for me, that was one definite stressor that impacted my mental health. Yeah, and, and I think that's this is just obviously a good example of for any companies looking to start to implement a mental health policy or, or any sort of program, there are so many variables you need to start to take into account. So um, we, we went through some reports on just the expat experience to start with and um, actually the majority of expats did um, flag up that the pandemic had caused the quality of their mental health to worsen but actually also 22% of people that were surveyed said it had improved their mental health so it, it's never going to be a, um, a one-size-fits-all for how you want to sort of approach it. They also um, did research on how expats responded to the following statement I would prefer to be in my home country during um, the COVID pandemic 44% of people um, agreed with that statement, 15% strongly agreed, but 33% disagreed with the statement and were happy to be um, in the country they were sort of located in. Um, that also how it affects personal relationships is a very mixed story as well. So on, on one hand, um, a lot of expats had experienced um, growing tensions with family and, and friends back home. Um, but 20, I think 24%, so about a quarter of people said their relationships got worse. Um, but 18% actually noticed uh, an improvement in their relationship so that it's quite a wide scale. I know for me personally, because I would be home fairly frequently, um, you know, it seemed like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll see them soon. But with the uncertainty of not knowing when to next get back home, the frequency of video calls and so forth for me went right up and the consistency in, in having conversations increased. So I would say it probably improved that relationship. Um, so yeah, it, it's again, just not a, a one size fits all um, by any means. No, definitely. And I think especially with the different lockdowns all around the world, some expats obviously started to reach out to their communities locally and were able to integrate a bit better. So in that way, I'm guessing it had pretty positive impacts on their experience in that, com uh, in that country. Yeah. Um, but again, it depends on where you are, because if you're in a strict lockdown, then those connections become quite tough. So yeah, we also saw the demographics within the expat community be if you had been longer established in your foreign country, then you are more likely to have had a positive experience. If it was a fairly recent move for you, you were more likely to have had a negative experience. So yeah. I can only imagine that if you just 
first moved to London and then had been forced to live out of your flat for six months before you're allowed to go outside or whatever that sort of time period was. It seems like a grey haze to me now, but um, that that would have, you know, without, like you said, your local community sort of established around you would have been a much more different experience than if you've been here for for long enough to have local friends in the right time zones and so forth. And I mean, that, that's just an example of the sort of expat experience, I guess. But um, this goes into the sort of companies as well. And then what's their sort of role and responsibilities within that? Um, the interview today is obviously focused around the oil and gas sector. And, and I'm sure Asma's got some interesting com- uh, questions around this as well. But we thought we'd just sort of quickly have a look at the impact on that as, as a specific industry. I mean, just to give some insight, workers in the oil and gas sector, um, even before COVID, are under a particular amount of pressure. They have to avoid mistakes because um, there are very serious consequences in that industry. Um, mistakes, you're looking at potential loss of life, environmental destruction if, if um, things go wrong. So there's a lot of pressure on that. You've also got the offshore element of people working away from home for long periods of time, which I guess some people started to experience potentially with COVID, but it's a very common thing in that industry for you know isolation, loneliness, and frustration and dissatisfaction um, with the job is very common. But I guess on top of that, I mean, in the oil and gas industry, the, that, that sector was kind of traveling throughout the pandemic. So even from March 2020, they were still the first industry to really start going out there again. And I guess the uncertainty about the countries you're going to, the COVID impact in that country, being locked down for a longer period of time than your full, you know, assignments. So if you're assigned for three months on a rig um, offshore and then you get that, it gets extended because you're locked into that country. Um, I'm assuming that will have really detrimental effects on um, those, those people's mental health. So companies really need to try and do the research before that occurs to try and prevent that situation as much mm-hmm. as possible, or to at least provide the support for those, those people in those networks in case um, that does end up happening. Yeah, and I think it's definitely one of the key industries looking to sort of make a change. I, I mean, it, it's always been a factor, but I think the traditional sort of approach to dealing with this was more to throw money at, at people and, you know, suck it up a little bit I, I think was kind of the the approach I think also being obviously a male heavy industry there's, there's quite a stigma around mental health and a culture of you know you're a man figure it out sort your own problems out sort of yeah. thing so but that's what I actually really like about COVID is that it's really reduced that stigma because yeah. I feel like people are way more open to talk about their experiences and yeah. you know how they're feeling and even speak up to employers and say you know I'm not comfortable with this I'm not ready to travel I'm not ready to go out, back out there and that should be the time of behavior that organizations are encouraging right or at least providing them with the tools to help reduce that anxiety and reduce that stress yeah and and that's what i was um, looking at as well is like money is no longer enough of a of a temporary fix that the the younger generations and the generations that are upcoming now we're, we're taking mental health access to things that we spoke on the digital nomad program a couple of episodes ago um, and the benefits of that in terms of attracting better caliber of employees that um, you know a, a bit more money is not going to change the fact that you know we sort of need access to mental health programs we need a positive environment to be able to work in um, otherwise you know just going to look elsewhere and you're not going to be able to get access to the talent yeah. um, so 
what is it that companies can do to help reduce this mental health impact? Yeah, it, it's it's a big question, and obviously, again, one that's helped, thankfully kind of been a little bit accelerated with COVID. I mean, just to take a look at it first in terms of what is the cost before, like, why should you start looking and doing something about this? The World Health Organization estimates that poor mental health costs the global economy one trillion US dollars wow. in lost productivity. That's trillion with a T. <laughs> That's um, crazy. So uh, just looking at the UK as a specific example, the business cost of mental health was 10.6, uh, I think this was 2016 to 2017, it was 10.6 billion in sickness absence, oh. 21.2 billion in reduced productivity when at work, presenteeism, um, and then 3.1 billion just in replacing staff who leave due to mental health reasons. So, I mean, the, the cost impact is massive. Um, the Center for Mental Health shows that the sort of aggregate cost of employers spending on mental programs in the UK was about 34.9 billion, um, which, which was the equivalent of a thousand per 1,000 pound per employee, which ultimately is not too bad. But that's also averaging out um, compared to people that aren't spending and so forth. So if you put a proper program in place, you can get a, a decent mental health package for sort of 80 to 100 pounds per employee, which can have a massive impact for the business Huge. and reduce those costs. Huge. I think also just making managers aware of what those triggers could be to really help identify, you know, mental mental health stresses within their workforce and specifically, specifically with employees that they know well, because you know, a manager will have that responsibility to, you know, notify HR, especially with these big organizations, and somebody needs to take this new responsibility. Um, because previously, I don't think companies really had this very structured process in place, but that is changing. And I think that's going to help to retain talent is to provide that type of mental health support and mental well-being support. Yeah, a big key for this is going to be creating a culture of openness that employees are willing to do. And quite often, the, the most effective way to affect or impact culture is from the top down. Mm -hmm. So lead, leadership training is probably one of the first areas in supporting um, with developing a mental health program. Um, the, the other impact is obviously to understand that these things are having an impact and supporting in the right areas. You do need to be able to sort of survey um, your staff, which you're only going to get good data if they feel like they're, they're able to be open and to answer this. So even things like having leadership um, speak on their own mental health challenges and, and share that openly with the company are big yeah. steps to help in that direction. I was reading a report on burnout and some companies are starting to implement this one week of holiday for the whole, across the whole company so that everyone's on leave at the same time to prevent bur burnout within their workforce and that's really important because often when we go on holiday we're still you know prone to checking our emails and checking yeah. our phones but if the whole company's off for, for a full week then everyone is forced to switch off which yeah. I think in the long run will definitely help reduce that mental health impact. Also just coming back from that week off you're all then sharing the pressure of, of exactly. coming back to it but yeah we, we had a couple of companies we work with email us and just say hey Hey, we're, the whole company is taking a week off. If you need anything, tell me now or, or wait a week, which, which I think exactly. is really powerful. Um, a, a few things that companies can specifically start doing to, to help in the mental health
health space um, is obviously making some self-assessment tools available. Obviously, it can be, as we said, really difficult for people to take the first step and share. So if they can use some self-assessment, um, they're far more likely to start engaging in that way. Um, offering free or subsidized clinical screenings um, for depression and with qualified mental health can be really valuable. Offering health insurance with no or, or low costs um, for depression medication, mental health counseling. Um, but some of the other areas is also um, trying to be proactive in preventative mm -hmm. measures as well. So we've even seen companies providing free or subsidized lifestyle coaching, um, counseling or self-management programs. So similar to the health industry where it's better to help someone with their gym membership, get them healthy rather than them get to a, a place where they end up in hospital. If you can start to create positive mental health exactly. impact um, with your employees rather than wait for it to become a problem and then try and treat it. Um, these things can be really impactful both for the both for your bottom line, it, it, all the numbers I mentioned in terms of loss of productivity, but like we said, um, better staff, more incentivized to work for your, for your company and so forth as well can be a big yeah. factor. No, I completely agree. And I think companies are starting to make the right move and hopefully this just continues to get better over time. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we just as a ballpark though, this is obviously a big impact or sorry, a long-term program to start with in place and it's not going anywhere. So you may as well, may as well get started now. But um, the average ROI, this was based in Canada, was about three years to become um, uh, price positive, sorry, or investment positive, um, where they're actually financially benefiting. But what that took into account was um, cost versus uh, reduction in cost. What it didn't take into account was things like um, improved productivity. Yeah. So what you're able to achieve in that first year with more productive staff and so forth is very difficult to calculate. So it really could be a lot sooner than that. Um, but this is something where if, if you're interested, it's definitely worth speaking to HR specialists. Um, it's definitely worth consulting with firms as well as to how you can bring this into your business. A really important starting point is rather than just trying to put a mental health program in place or add it to your employee benefits is actually analyzing your workplace and culture. If you're if you're the type of business who really discourages people from taking their earned annual leave, which is common in a lot of industries, then putting the mental health in place is putting a band-aid on, exactly. on the problem kind of thing. So you need to also look at that. Um, we do work with partners in this space who can both provide the programs for you to provide to employees, as well as consultants who can come in and take a look at your business, um, work on three-month programs to help a company right up to 12-month programs to start implementing these sort of things in the right way. So. As we said, it's worth getting started sooner rather than later. Um, it's not going away. It's going to be a part of the future. So exactly, yeah. Mental health there. is just as important as your physical health. So yeah. prioritize it. Definitely. I, what, one more stat for me was that if you end up in hospital with both concurring physical issues and mental health issues, it costs three times more to treat you than if you just go in with with one of the two. So uh, yeah, very important to take a look at both. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, that, that's a very small snippet of the overall topic we wanted to get into. There, there's so many more variables to take into account. And um, if you're interested in this, please feel free to get in touch. As I mentioned, um, we do have partners and experts in this field who are able to support. And that's the, the benefit of reaching out to a network, I, I guess, is we're here to connect you with the, with the right people who can help. Um, we've got another amazing interview um, today with Asma, um, speaking with our, our guest from ENI. So I'm sure they'll touch a little bit on this as well and yeah. look at how the oil and gas industry is changing the way they work. Um, but I guess without further ado, we'll uh, throw over to Asma. Thanks so much. Thanks. Welcome to episode nine of the Network Effect, and really good to have you here on again. Um, so, like every week, we have amazing speakers that come on to talk about their industry, their inspiring journeys, um, and anything that you know we feel is motivational, informational, and educational as well for our audience. And so today is like no other week. We've got an absolutely amazing guest coming on board. But before I am, uh, make a, a formal introduction, I just wanted to kind of set the scene in terms of you know what we're going to talk about today and, and the and the sector itself. So I've personally worked with the oil and gas sector probably for more than 15 years. Uh, a, lot, a lot of clients actually in, in this sector were clients of mine over a period of 15 years. And so I understand the industry really well. Um, and when I go back to sort of the early parts of my career, um, I was involved in a number of government initiatives when it, taught, uh, when it was about skills, uh, talent, shortage of occupations that existed in the UK, when UK companies couldn't find uh, qualified engineers. Uh, and I worked with the DIT back then um, to be able to lobby and support initiatives to be able to do that. So. The challenges have always existed within this sector and this industry, and I think there's been turbulence, you know, over the years with so many different challenges that this, uh, uh, you know, the energy sector has experienced. And I thought COVID uh, has come along now, and post-COVID and post-pandemic, it's actually even more challenging. And it would be interesting to see how this particular industry group is transforming and also innovating in the way that they work and are they keeping up with the times and so without further ado i'd like to actually introduce our guest for today um, he is somebody that i've known for a number of years um, he is in contract management within eni so please welcome robert reeves asma how are you doing <laughs> hi rob how are you not too bad, not too bad. Uh, really interesting discussion, the first part of the um, part of the meeting. Um, yeah, I'm doing well, and that's you know that's largely thanks to our HR department that we have in our place and different things that we've put in place because um, work hours have changed totally. You know, now that you've um, you're using Teams, uh, <laughs> Zoom, and everything else, the, the world's changed. You're more connected, but then still quite far apart. So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting times. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the topic itself is an interesting one. And I guess, you know, while when the sort of the lockdown first happened um, back in March 2020, one of the key things was that the world came to a standstill, um, you know, period, sort of over a period of time. But the oil and gas sector still kept going, right? So that's my personal experience. I was still advising companies where they were, you know, kind of stranded in different locations. They needed to get home. We were chartering flights. We were trying to do some government liaison with various different 
industries and ministries. So tell us a little bit about your experiences and what happened at that time and how you overcame those problems. Well, like you've just said there, nothing nothing stopped. It slowed down. Um, and then also, you know, there's been more thought in process and how things are done, you know, and a number of our colleagues, like your your colleagues just said a second ago, expats stuck in different places, um, you know, not seeing family for, you know, in some instances, you know, six months a year, maybe maybe even longer. You know, one of my colleagues was living in a flat in London, and mm-hmm. I don't think he'd seen anybody for six months. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our, our finance manager, for example, he spent the best part of I think, twelve months living in a, in a two bedroom flat with him and his um, was it him and his child and it's been tough because the work hours have changed as well the work hours have become more mm-hmm. um, slightly erratic um, you know the way that we connect now using these different methods is um, you know once once we're all sitting in an office you know quite quite happily somebody knock on your door mm-hmm. you come in you discuss whatever it might be you go on to the next thing but now it's a case of um, there's lots of questions, lots of things going on, and it's lots of different media platforms mm-hmm. being used for it. So, to some extent, it's overload. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I think there's that interesting statistic a minute ago from WHO. Um, there was another one as well, which I remember because I was reading about the other day, and it was it was saying 2019, the biggest um, biggest killer of all is suicide. Oh yeah. And you know, I don't want to get into a into a dark place, <laughs> but it's uh, you know 55 million people. Mm. killed themselves and it's not not just because of work but because of multiples of things and it's understanding not just your teams the people you work with identifying signs of of problems difficulties i mean we're we're lucky we've got an amazing hr department um right at the start of it, i think three to four months in we did a consultant piece um so i, I set it up with hr and it, it reached out to the staff members and it looked at um you know how they were coping what tools they were using um, hours of work, you know, what what were the plus sides? What were the detractors? Mm-hmm. All of these sort of things, and it was it was quite interesting to see the results. And I think mm-hmm. um, our last meeting when we met Pasika, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, that was that was partly what I went into um, at, at some stage and went into what we were seeing, you know. And interestingly enough, we'll be looking at doing some more of that as well and trying to understand how people are working because you know the work um, it's never going to be the same now. Yeah, yeah, we've, yeah, we've put different tools in place now, but we have different expectations as well. Mm. So it's trying to make sure that the business aligns with with the people, the staff, yeah. to make sure that they're not overloaded, um, which, which can be easily done. You know, I talk to my, you know, many, many colleagues all the time about you know, how, how they're feeling, how they're yeah. doing. You know, and I can tell you from sort of personal experience that I've, I've struggled. You know, you'll, you'll do a 14, 16 hour day because your brain doesn't switch off. You're, you're still thinking, right, I'm, I'm, I'm behind or mm-hmm. there's something that's not been done. Yeah. And it's having boundaries in place. Mm-hmm. It's having the company's understanding that, uh, you know, there is a life outside of work. You know, most of us either have families, we have, you know, relationships, um, but even going out for a walk, you know, before our meeting, I had a coffee with a, with a colleague of mine that's uh, running one of our process departments. and. You know, it's very interesting, you know, she has these constant conversations and catch up with everybody and sort of making sure that they're okay. Because yeah, you've got, yeah. same, within the engineering um, sector itself, it's, it's you've got very diverse and neurodiverse brain sets, you know. Yeah. Um, ADHD, autism, everything, you know. Yeah. So it, it's making sure we sort of keep sort of understanding people. 
So, Rob, so, you know, one of the things that I guess has come out of this is that, uh, and I think that, you know, my team kind of alluded to that earlier, is that a lot of people have historically found it difficult to talk about mental health. And I don't want to make the whole session about mental health, but it is quite a serious one and it is quite an important one. And I think one of the things that's come out of pand the pandemic is the is this balance factor of, of the you know, personal life, of being able to have a balance, being able to enjoy life, being able to give your own health serious consideration, as well as keeping the work life in check as well because a lot of people have to uh, work to live so in terms of that how has that impacted your industry as a whole in terms of because obviously with with the oil and gas industry you know there's the office space you've got to be there together the teams have got to work to, there together so it's not like remote work is easy to do they're on site on projects so how have you managed those challenges I'll tell you how we've managed it. I'll tell you how, because obviously I've sort of conversations with people, you know, sort of the hackers and uh, different people, flirts and all of this. And, you know, they've they've taken a different a different approaches and some of them taking the same as us, you know, looking at their workforce, how they function. And, you know, sometimes they didn't function as well as they do now, possibly. But it's also working out how, how they can sort of have this work-life balance. And, you know, for us, it's been a case of, hate the saying but suck it and see you know to start with it it's very much changed from the start to is to now and it's also making sure that people understand that there's you know there's baby steps sometimes you have to switch off mm -hmm. and it's you know certainly within our HR department they will tell people that that's enough you know doing a 60 plus hour week you know will lead, it leads to burnout people do burnout and that that's crucial that what's going on mm -hmm. but Getting back to the other question quickly, um, a lot of people, I mean, ACA certainly, I mean, I, I know somebody there, they've offices, uh, they've closed one down because they've, they've worked out that they could be more competitive by um, working from home. So that, um, you know, London office, the lease with X amount of 100 people working in it, that's an overhead. So when they're going out to the different oil majors, they, they could be more competitive. Um, you know, it, they still have offices, so they can still go and meet up, they can still communicate, but then at the same time that that does lose those conversations that you have, you know, certainly what I've talked about and missed with different people is those conversations that you wouldn't normally have, mm -hmm. you know, about things that you might sort of, you forget to put in an email or something, mm -hmm. you know, something you might have missed and it, it's quite, you know, it's interesting how how sometimes you need to you need to see people face to face because yeah. you know realistically we've got you know we've got teams and you've got the messaging service on teams you've got the vc on teams you've got your emails you've got telephone calls but when you see somebody face to face then it's a different dynamic so it's it's understanding what dynamic works and how mm -hmm. well it works and yeah, just yeah. sorry to drag on too much but because <laughs> what, what i find a lot is that when somebody sends an email they then reinforce it with an instant message afterwards because you've not picked it up straight away. Yes, and exactly. Then what's, what's happening today is you're you're diluting people's work because you're not um, you're not sort of enabling them to spend their time doing their main objective, which is mm -hmm. their work. So mm -hmm. it, it's constant bombardment. So it's working out when you should be looking at your emails. You know, do you have your emails? Open? You know, I, I'm I'm terrible. At this. I have my emails on constantly. And, you know, I have a look at it in emails at two o'clock in the morning. For some reason, that's how my brain works. Yeah. I'll, I'll then go, oh, I need to answer that straight away. 
it's it's, it's become like that though hasn't it i mean I, i'm finding that personally as well that you're available 24 7 really around the clock and there's just no break in between but this is a huge subject and we could probably yeah, dedicate sorry. hours yeah, to yeah. it but i would be really interested to know more about so my experience with contracts teams commercial teams procurement it's a pain, right? Sorry to say it, but it's a pain, no, 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 right? No. So you're one of those painful people that we have to deal with when we want no. to win business and win uh, tenders. No. So I'm just going to put it out there. No, no, I totally understand that. And I'll, I'll tell you why <laughs> there is that pain. I mean, you know, it's it's twofold, okay? So so my, my job, my role is to make sure that commercially we're compliant, is to make mm -hmm. sure that everything ticks a box. So when it comes to... You know, when we're audited, when we're reviewed, everything is in place and there's no issues, you know, because issues can mean multi-million pound lawsuits, yes. it can mean, um, you know, loss of reputation. That's massive. You know, you've seen different oil majors where they've had, you know, their names sort of taken through the mud, won't mention any names, but because of that, mm -hmm. it, it loses the bottom line. Yeah. That, that's that's a massive thing so it's we are the pain but <laughs> pain, the pain is necessary um and don't get me wrong because I, I you know now i'm i'm sort of the procurement side of things i've been 18 years and then contract management more sort of on the other side making sure things work yeah. uh, for the last couple of years and uh, i understand the reason behind things it's kind of you know i've been on both sides of the fence and yeah, I have that pain, you know, realistically. <laughs> now, this is just an example, a contrast. And this is not just uh, in, in the ENI, this is in uh, most companies. You're looking at six to 12 months if you need to have a, a proper commercial tender. Yeah. You know, what, why is that? So, you know, you start off with your scope, you start off with whatever brief it might be. And, you know, it's understanding what's needed, you know, because a lot of the time what's needed doesn't transpire at the end. That, that's that's always been my issue mm -hmm. is that there's not always and i think that was one of the things we talked about before was how we sort of engage with different departments i've always seen it that you engage with everybody that's going to be in control or part of the contract if you don't do that then what happens at the end is the contract management mm -hmm. isn't possible it, it, it's hard because trying to go and um, manage something that is not fit for purpose mm -hmm. it is you know it, it's very hard and you know you can have your SLIs, you can have your KPIs, you can have your liquidated damage, you can have everything in place. Mm -hmm. But unless it is focused and everybody understands it, there's a problem. So yeah. we, we, we are we are needed, um, and probably a lot of people in you know in the industry and certainly within my sort of professional family and body um, would say we're, we're the most you know we're very important. You know I don't I don't think that's the case. I think it's we are. A part of part of the machine mm -hmm. that has stood, you know. And again, I'm, I'm probably going to ramble now. But if you if you take it back, you know, sort of 20 years ago, and you know, when I first sort of went into things, procurement was always a subset. It was always, oh look, um, you know, commercial maybe. We'll have it in operations. We'll, we'll have it into different areas. And the problem with that is it was never defined. It was always sort of controlled in a bit of a contrived way. And it was always basically to sort of try and tick as many boxes as possible then get to the end goal you know because procurement is it's been around forever you know since mm -hmm. we've been using stones or pebbles or shells for for uh, bartering and trying to get things <laughs> yeah we, we've always had something in place but you know it's only in recent years so Rob, I mean, obviously this you like you describe it, it's been around for years right so uh, the same traditional methods the same processes 
Has anything changed post-pandemic? I mean, organizations across the board where I'm going, people are trying to become leaner. And I guess one of the things that has come out of this pandemic is that, you know, we see departments, we see HR departments, we see, like you say, the commercial department, you see the legal department, you see various other departments, and they all kind of work Either sometimes they're forced to work in sync, but most of the time they're working in their, on their own. I mean, is the pandemic now forcing departments to become leaner? Is that the shift? What are you doing to transform? Well, 100%. And that's, you know, I talk to many colleagues over many different industries, and there's definitely uh, there's a shift. You know, the shift is, like you've just said, uh, to be leaner. It's understanding your OPEX and your CAPEX, mm -hmm. you know, different, different areas of it. And, you know, first of all, it's reduction. You know, you, you, you know, I don't think there's any company I know that hasn't gone back straight away to all the suppliers a couple of months into the pandemic and said, right, we want a re reduction. We want a reduction in cost. What's that mean? You know, for, for me, I'm slightly pragmatic in that because for me, that's a reduction in services, a reduction in something. You know, if you take 10 or 15, 20% off of, of a supplier, what, where are they taking that from? Mm -hmm. You know, so most people have gone back to their supply base and sort of say demanded but they've certainly asked for for changes um because it is needed um so yeah there, there is a there is a big a big shift towards this but also you know departments are talking more they are sort of trying to understand the briefs better and also what's what's needed so yeah okay. it's um it's difficult times on that side of things. It's difficult times for the you know the end user and obviously the the supply base. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. But I think that uh, so just just kind of looking at this, and we're looking at one of the uh, challenges that the industry faces is the skills gap as well, right? So like I was talking about earlier in the intro, when I go back to say 10 to 15 years ago, I remember, you know, going up to the home office, going up to sort of, you know, working with some of the government teams on recognizing what could be done in schools, in universities, in terms of education, of bringing more young talent into the oil and gas sector. It was all a challenge back then. It had nothing to do with COVID and I had nothing to do with anything. But most of our you know, uh, uh, graduates or children coming out of the schools, they did sciences, they probably did really well, but they went into university, they graduated with all the degrees from Imperial and Oxford and Cambridge, and then decided to do investment banking. <laughs> because either it pays more or it was just a little bit more sexier than any other uh, industry. And so I'd like to understand, I mean, that was back then, right? I'm talking about 15 years ago. We now fast forward, COVID has happened post pandemic. What's being done in this industry to attract talent and are we producing enough talent well i can tell you on that side of things because we, we normally in we have the commercial committee meeting and we, we talk about this every single time you know the industry days that they they put on you know different parts of our industry go to the universities you know we we try and have different graduates of ours that have sort of uh, progressed and sort of talk to people and sort of say you know this is this is what you can expect you know there's different changes um i it's been hard to attract people and it's it certainly hasn't got any better since probably you last looked into it but from the way the industry is going at the moment and the way that we're looking at things we're looking at renewables we're looking at things that you know you, you talk about uh, banking being sexy you know it sounds sounds a bit sad really but renewables sexy renewables and the, the solar farms the photovoltaics all the different things that we're looking at doing the hydrogen capture just they are things that sort of people are sort of getting on board with. And I think 
when you sell that or if you sort of give people an idea that that's the industry you can get into because that's what all majors are going into all majors are having to diversify you know we've got this you know in the uk at least the 2030 deadline for different uh, things that we have to go and stop using or or cars that we won't be able to go and buy a, a, a diesel or a um a, what's it petrol car anymore <laughs> you know there's, there's a massive shift so it, it's really getting people to understand what what it actually means to be within that sector because that mm -hmm. sector's and you know certainly for you know what am i now eight eight years into into this side of things for that like i said to you before mining and everything like that another hard one to go and push people into but people are understanding that it's it's changed because mm -hmm. it was all it's all about getting the the best price for the, for the for the barrel it was extracting it at the lowest cost making sure that it was um everything was maintained properly so it keeps uh, Europics cost down so it's it's really understanding what is out there and what else can be sort of looked at so I think we're, we're doing I think um, so Tracy Tracy Shelley you mm -hmm. also know <laughs> on the seek side of things is not not selling but certainly sort of saying what what else is available and what, yeah. what the industry means you know it's understanding that I think but just thinking out loud and just from your commentary there, it just made me wonder because the ECITB just does, has done a lot of work on this, right, the Engineering Council and a huge amount of work. And I've just want, struggled to understand why there isn't enough movement in being able to attract that talent or to build that talent in country and not having to seek it from outside. And I guess one of the things that just occurred to me there is, you know, the people that work behind the scenes to attract these uh, uh, candidates to, to the oil and gas sector, are they actually engineering people themselves? Or is it sort of external candidates that can actually dress this up and maybe communicate this in a better way to be able to sell the industry in a more educational way or, or maybe target the millennials in a better way? Yeah, no, no, I get that. I get that. I'm one year off of being a millennial. <laughs> yeah, well, you know where I'm coming from. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that is always been the problem I've seen the the people that are sort of um, push down that road are generally the a lot of the older engineers a lot of the people that have always known what what it was in the past rather than mm -hmm. what it is in the future and that certainly from uh, the seeker side of the world is is the way that things are happening and could it be done differently yes it could could it be sold better probably because it's it's about vision isn't it yeah and it's really vision that sometimes you know this sounds terrible but uh, and i'm sure we've got lots of engineers all tuned into this <laughs> a lot of my friends are engineers but the mindset is very yes. very focused it's not always where you know outside of the box it doesn't think of all the different possibilities and yeah you're right it could be addressed slightly differently and maybe with you know people people that are in a different sort of world. No, completely. And I'll tell you why I say that, because if you look at the tech sector, right, and I'm, I'm kind of looking, I'm just thinking out loud here, so please don't quote me on any of this, but I'm just thinking out, the so tech sector works really well. So you've got a founder, right, but they've got a vision, they've got an idea and a business, they're building a business and they've got it, but actually the techno technology piece, they can't do. So they need to bring in that expert. So I, I see that like an engineer being, comes in to build, to develop, to do all of that. But then you need that visionary, you need that person who's developing that business side. So can the engineering sector or the oil and gas sector benefit from this marrying of two sides that actually help accelerate the uh, intake and in, or the interest 
in the younger generation in this industry group because it's a real struggle. I mean, I know a lot of people are doing this thing about STEM now. It used to be the engineering sector, you know, standalone, but now it's STEM is a big thing in the UK. Um, but how much that's, you know, the change is happening there, I don't know. But I'm going to move on to contracts again. <laughs> I keep diversifying. We do mental health, yeah, we do no, the no, skills, no. talent. But there's so much to talk about with you that, uh, you know, we could be here for hours, but obviously I want to try and focus around the contracts and the commercial side. So, Robbie, it'd be really good to learn more about the commercial contract side, right? What are you doing? What are you innovating in there? What are you transforming in the commercial side? So that if companies are looking into, you know, becoming suppliers or renewing contracts or, or you know, what's to come? What's the innovation that's happening that, in your that's, space? That, that's, you know, an interesting one. I think we were talking about sort of suppliers and um, what we were doing with them a second ago, and it kind of transfers over because, you know, the whole onboarding process for, you know, for suppliers into any part of my industry is massive. Mm. You know, you know, we, we put an, uh, I think a figure of I think it's about, it, tens of thousands to actually onboard a supplier mm -hmm. you know obviously you're looking not just at the ISOs you're reviewing all the accounts you've done done a Bradstreet obviously and all of these different things and you're, you're looking at those and you know there are you know we're not at the moment we, we and I as it were different parts of us probably are but I don't know about it but um, you know, there's different softwares and different things out there that can be used. You know, you've got Achilles. Um, what was it? I think there's about three or four softwares that actually do most of the process for you to actually go and onboard a supplier that gets you to the stage where, and also rationalise your supplier base mm -hmm. as well. Because one of my my old jobs was uh, many years ago was to look at the supply base and reduce it down. I think the first time it was thirty percent or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and having I think ten thousand suppliers, that's fairly easy. Um, so it's using the technologies to go and sort of further the agenda, but to get it to a stage where you can actually look at the main things, which is, you know, what you're trying to get at the end of the, the process. So yeah, there's, a, there's quite a few different um, software types out there as well. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, there's quite, you know, there's... You know, Normally, I, I talked to about three or four, not not three and I, but um, with what they're doing, I think Aveta's another one as well. Mm -hmm. they, they do a prequel and sort of onboarding process um, where, they, where they look at all the potential risks of the supplier because there's a, a massive risk when it comes to suppliers. If you've got the wrong supplier, you know, it's again, it's reputation, maybe, you know, loss of money, not just through the reputation, but also them not producing what they need to. And, you know, we've always been an industry very focused on inspection and following things through. So, you know, we, we do use different things. And I know that most of these competition people out there have uh, softwares in place that they, they use constantly. Um, I remember our last conversation with, uh, was it Tolone from um, Fleur? For example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking about Power BI. You know, that's, that's a perfect example of this, actually. And how reporting can be... Um, well run and to understand every sort of part of it. So you might have the supply chain and then go right to the actual end product and it's mm -hmm. breaking all those different parts down and using as a tool. I know that um, us as a company, um, we're using Power BI to a certain extent and mm -hmm. trying to push it through. So it's, it, it's a slow process. Um, yeah. Any major is, it's like an, I'll refer it to an oil, oil tanker. Mm -hmm. You know, to go and change direction is five miles or however many miles it is. It's, it's a very slow process because it's, there's so many 
things and hurdles that we have to actually jump through before we can actually get to there. So I don't know if that answers your question. But... <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, I mean, every answer is an interesting answer, right? So we're educating people here, giving them information that probably wouldn't otherwise have an insight into a procurement team. So if anyone's trying to come and win a bid or, or do something, I think these are great insights. And I guess the other thing that I would like to ask is, um, and again, some companies do have a policy around it, but whether your sector, and I don't know if E&I as a whole, but supplier diversity, I mean, is there any policy around that? Or is it about low risk? I mean, how do you select suppliers? Um, what's the process for that? Great question, great question, and it changes constantly. Um, the you know the suppliers sort of obviously we have a supply base already, and that gets constantly reviewed. Again, we refer back to John Bradstreet. We review their actual financials as well to make sure that they um, they have a certain amount of turnover, and also that we're not the was it the highest um, part of their portfolio? Because if that you know the risk is is too high. So there's, there's lots of different things that we, we look at doing and winning is, is it's a tough question. You know, it's, it is a tough question because it, there, there's so, so many things. It's, we talked about ISOs before, it's making sure, would we look at a company without an ISO? Mm -hmm. Possibly. It depends on their turnover, it depends on what specifically they do, but you can generally, in, well, UK best, you can relate an ISO back to what uh, the quality, you know, the, the quality of the management and the process they have in place. We we know that when we audit them, because we, we generally audit X amount of times, we we know that they can perform the service. Okay. And I think we've obviously run out of time. Um, and I'm just going to thank you very much for coming on here today and, and you know, touching on some of these really interesting subjects. But, you know, these are quite detailed uh, topics um, which will be of interest to many, many people. Um, so thank you very much for coming on today and I hope everyone enjoyed and I look forward to seeing you all again next week. Thank you.